Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Well, let's open God's Word now to the Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. If you don't have a copy of the Bible for yourself or on your app or on your phone, there should be a hardback black copy uh, in the chairs around you. We would love for you to see God's Word. I'm going to read the text. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're just going to walk through the particular passage that I've chosen for this morning. And so I'd love for you to see it as we do that. So Revelation chapter 11, I'm going to go back to verse 1, and I'll read all the way through verse 10, just so that we can see the context of what what God has revealed to John and what John has passed on to us, so that we can be encouraged and uh, so we can know what the Lord has shown us. So starting in verse 1, chapter 11, we read this, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff. And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Now we looked at that just last week. Here's where we'll pick up this morning. Verse 7. And when they have finished their testimony. The beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents. Because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. This is God's word. Would you join me in prayer as we ask the Lord to help us to understand his word. Father, we do come to you at this point in our worship and ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts and minds that we may see and know what you have revealed to us. And let it be an encouragement to us to be faithful to you, to to be faithful to the calling that you have placed upon your people. And let us be prepared for what is ahead for us. But let us not lose heart. Accomplish your purpose with us this morning as the word is preached and the gospel is declared. I pray that you would comfort us where we need to be comforted, afflict us where we need to be afflicted, and you would receive the praise of your people as we respond faithfully to your word. That's my hope and that's my prayer. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One thing that Jesus made very clear was that to be one of his disciples meant embracing a challenging road, not an easy one. 
One guy came and said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus responded by saying, foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, Jesus says, are you willing to accept being homeless? Are you willing to have fewer comforts in this world than the birds of the air have in order to be my disciple? Are you willing to forsake the world and the comforts of the world in order to follow Christ? Another man came to Jesus and said, Lord, I will follow you, but first, let me go and say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus responded and said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. We cannot commit to Christ with divided loyalty. If we try to follow Jesus while longing for the things that we left behind, the hardships ahead will crush us. If we go forward with Christ while our hearts are still set upon the people and the places and the comforts of this world, the day will come, Jesus says, when our hands will leave the plow and following Christ will not be our priority. Discipleship. It's not an emotional decision that just happens at a moment in time. It requires us to count the cost of that type of life. Jesus wanted those who heard him preach and he wanted his disciples to know and he wants us to know that the Christian life is not an easy life. He told us very clearly it's going to be a narrow, a confining, the kind of place that's uncomfortable and cramped. It's a narrow road and it's going to be dangerous and there are going to be few who find it. He wants us to know that allegiance to him will mean alienation from the world, a denial of self, so that he becomes the all-consuming passion and priority of our days. And this is not up for debate. This is what Christ calls us to. Doing hard things is part of God's intended process to wean us off of our love for this world and cause us to look more and more like our Savior. We like to quote, you know, iron sharpens iron, but you know, it gets really hot and really uncomfortable when two pieces of iron are rubbing against one another. The call to discipleship is like the call to boot camp, and we never actually graduate from it. We just keep going forward. We keep trusting in Christ. We keep putting sin to death. We keep serving others. We keep preaching Christ and renewing our hope in the promises of God. We need to embrace that our life of faith is a battle that we wake up to every morning. And this is the language that the New Testament uses, the the language of warfare, spiritual warfare. Battle language. We have a mission to attend to. We have a job to do. And this passage here in the Revelation lets us know that one day our task, our mission as a church is going to be complete. But this passage also teaches that opposition will follow us until the very end. In other words, there are no easy days ahead for the church Because, as we learn in this passage, our enemy has declared war. 
So as we get into this passage, I want us to see three different things. There's three things that I want to teach from this passage, and they are this. Number one, the church will finish the mission. The church will complete the testimony, number one. Number two, the beast will rise. And number three, the world will rejoice at our demise. So, Let's start with the very first point as we look back at chapter 11 and verse 7. And here's the point. The church will finish the mission. John says this, and when they have finished their testimony, it's right there. It might seem subtle to you, but it's important. It's important in the flow of what we're seeing in redemptive history here. They will finish their testimony. How many of y'all like to jump into home projects? And you just don't quite get around to finishing them. I don't know, maybe it's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to clean out the garage and you get halfway in and then you get a phone call or a text message or the game comes on and you got to run back in and, and it just doesn't get done. Or, or maybe, has anybody ever decided that they were going to straighten up the attic? Me either. But if you ever decided to do that, you would find every excuse not to finish that particular project. I've been wanting for the last, I don't know, seven or eight years to to paint the baseboards in the house, but they never seem to get painted. There are all kinds of things that are maybe undesirable is the right word, maybe a little bit intimidating, and we're not sure if we'll ever complete them. So why start, right? Well, there's one thing that we can be assured of. And the scriptures make clear that there is coming a day when the church, when the people of God sent out into the world, when we will complete the mission that Christ has called us to complete. The church as a missionary organization will complete the task that Christ has set upon us. By the power of the Spirit of God and the bold effort of the people of God, the gospel will be preached to the ends of the earth. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 24, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. There is coming a day when our mission will be complete. But just so we're clear, it's important that we understand what our mission actually entails. Why are we still here? What have we been called to do? Now, for generations, that that wasn't up for debate. That really wasn't a question. But in recent years, some pastors and missiologists have decided that the Great Commission has occupied too central or too controlling a role in the mission of the church. You may be familiar with this. You may not be. And if I'm just revealing something to you that you've never heard before, well, then you're welcome. Kevin DeYoung draws attention to the trends within missiology when he writes this. You may know some of these names. He writes, John Stott, arguing for social action as an equal partner of evangelism, suggested that we give the Great Commission to prominent a place in our Christian thinking. Now, I don't know, you probably know John Stott. You probably heard him quoted. I may have quoted him a time or two, but I don't think John Stott gets this right. Another social commentator, Leslie Newbegin, concluded that the Christian mission is to act out in the whole life of the whole world the confession that Jesus is Lord. The mission of the church, in other words, cannot be reduced to our traditional understanding of missions. Kevin DeYoung goes on, 
drawing attention to these trends. No longer is the role of the church defined mainly that we are ambassadors or witnesses. The church's task is now uh, in the world to be a partner with God. As God establishes shalom and brings his reign and rule to bear on the peoples and places of the earth. Now, I don't know if you've read either of these guys. I don't know if you have any concept of these trends in missiology. And this might sound good to modern sensibilities, but the problem is it's just not biblical. Our mission is to preach Christ crucified. Full stop. Our mission is to call upon the world to repent of sin and trust in Christ for salvation and there is hope in no other name. Our mission is to go out into all the world to make disciples, to teach them and train them and to send them out. Our goal is to proclaim Christ and Him crucified to the very ends of the earth. The goal of the church is to be a witness to the things that Christ has revealed to us. We are to preach the gospel to convert new new people. We are to establish those new converts in the faith and then we set them loose on the world. And we do that through the ministry of local churches. But don't just take my word for it. In Luke chapter 24, as Jesus comes to the, the end of his earthly ministry, he actually gives marching orders to the church. This is just Luke's version of the Great Commission that we read about in Matthew 28. But these are the words of Christ where he says, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. That's God's part. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem, and you, you are witnesses of these things. The gospel is a message like no other, and it is to be spread throughout the world. And it is a message that goes with the authority of Christ. But it is a message that we are called to preach. We spread this message through proclamation. We preach the gospel. We preach repentance and forgiveness of sins in his name to all nations. Now, if this is new for you, I'm I'm sorry no one's ever shared this with you. But I want to dig into this a little bit more clearly so that we have a greater understanding of, of the mission that Christ has called us to. But if we go back and we look at Luke 24, I think there's three specific things that come across in what Jesus says here about our role in proclaiming this message. Number one, he talks about the authority of the message, the content of the message, and then the scope of the message. The authority of the message comes from Christ himself. We are to proclaim this good news in his name, and we are serving under his authority. The parallel passage in Matthew 28 starts out with Jesus declaring to his disciples that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Therefore, you go. And the implication is that we operate in this world under the authority of Christ. And he tells us that his message and the ministry that he's called us to has authority to the ends of the earth. The authority comes from him. And we go out as ambassadors, as witnesses under his sovereign rule. And he makes clear in this passage what the content of our message is. Repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Repentance and the forgiveness of sins. We looked at this last week, that our message is not complete if we're not calling men and women to turn from their sins and trust in Christ alone. 
Jesus made it very clear when he walked onto the scene in Mark chapter 1. The time was fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. Repentance is part of the gospel proclamation. This is what we're called to do. And repentance is the only appropriate, the only God-honoring response to the message of the gospel. It's the only appropriate response. Repentance is a change of life as well as a change of thinking. We turn away from sin and we trust in Christ alone for our forgiveness. And the promise of Christ is that for all who call upon the name of the Lord, they will be saved. Forgiveness comes to all those who believe. This is what we're called to do. So we've, Jesus tells us about the authority of the message. He tells us about the content of the message. And then he tells us about the scope of the message. To all nations. This is not just a message for Jerusalem. Nor was it just a message for Judea and Samaria. It was to the ends of the earth because there is no realm on earth where Christ and his gospel cannot penetrate and change the hearts of his people. There is no tribe or people or language or tongue that cannot be reached. And as such, there is no such thing as a truly closed country. The gospel has free reign to the ends of the earth. And that authority comes from the one who has the authority over all of heaven and all of earth. And he has decreed that we, yes, you and I, are to take this message and proclaim it to the ends of the earth. Every square inch of his domain. This is the mission. This is the ministry of the church. We preach. We teach. We set men and women loose on the world And the scriptures make clear that there is coming a day when that mission will be complete. But this text also tells us that the world is not going to sit idly by as we go about our mission. The world is going to oppose us at every turn. Look at verse 7 again where we see the beast rising. It says, and the beast that rises from the bottomless pit or the abyss, maybe it says that in your copy of God's Word, he will make war on them, he will make war on the witnesses, and conquer them, and kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of that great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. The terrifying earthly opponent of believers is christened the beast. And we've We've read about him in the scriptures before. This is not an entirely new concept. The beast, according to John's vision, is one that comes from the bottomless pit, which means that this beast is associated with the demonic underworld. Now, for those of you who've been in Mark Ritchie's Greek class, I doubt very seriously in your vocabulary that you have come across the word beast because it doesn't occur that many times in the New Testament. But the the Greek word for beast is therion, and its field of meaning is is not very broad. Um, We see the word beast being used to describe the animals that God has created, right? We see this in the the language of the Old Testament and the New, the beasts of the field, birds of the air. That word beast is there and it's talking to actual created animals, right? And yet there's another field of meaning that would have us understand that beast refers to uh, animal-like beings of a supernatural or transcendent kind. And that's what we're dealing with here, John tells us in his vision that the beast makes war on the witnesses. It conquers and kills them. 
Now, we learn a lot more about this beast in Revelation 13. We even hear about him in Revelation 17. God has plans for this beast. But here, and and, and especially in Revelation 13, we, we see that this beast is being compared, if you, if you see Revelation 13, the beast is being compared to a leopard and a bear and a lion. And for those of you who know your Old Testament, then you'll know that this is a very clear allusion to what Daniel wrote in Daniel chapter 7. If, if you didn't know this, um, there's a lot of Old Testament allusions and, and symbolism in the Revelation. Uh, and, and one of them is quite clearly this allusion to what Daniel wrote. Now, for those of you who aren't real familiar with, let me tell you what happened to Daniel in Daniel chapter 7. He had visions in the night, and he received in this particular vision a, a vision of four different beasts. And these beasts all came up out of the sea. And, and, but these were not normal beasts. These were not the beasts of the field. These were the supernatural, transcendent kind of beast. And the first beast exactly like the beast in Revelation 13, had the appearance of a lion, a bear, and a leopard. That's why we know that these two things go together. And the the beast in Daniel's visions were, were set to devour. They were set out into the world to devour. They had dominion on the earth, and, and specifically their intention was to devour the people of God. But there was a fourth beast in his vision, And the fourth beast was unique among all that Daniel saw. Daniel writes about this beast in Daniel 7. He says, after I saw this, I saw a fourth beast, and he was terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Ten horns coming up out of his head. And I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which the three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. Now, this language is the same kind of language that we see in the Revelation. This is apocalyptic language. And and there's symbols in these visions in the same way that what we're seeing in Revelation is symbolic of something. But what is it symbolic of? Daniel was seeing this vision. He sees these beasts. He sees these horns. And, And we get an explanation that these beasts refer to kingdoms. Does that make sense? They refer to nations. And the horns refer to the leaders of those kingdoms, the kings, the leaders of those nations. So this is symbolism. And the reason we know this to be true is because later on in the vision, Daniel says, please tell me what's going on here. I don't understand the vision that I'm seeing. And the one who gave him the vision explains it. Daniel's vision of the fourth beast, which was different than the others and more powerful than all the rest, it was a prophecy about the final kingdom on earth and its war against the people of God. And John takes that imagery, takes that prophecy, and he's pulling it into the the new covenant. He's helping us understand that what Daniel saw is being fulfilled in the fact that there are nations persecuting the people of God. And he even gives us this idea that there's going to be one that rises that will be the final nation. 
This final wicked kingdom is going to trample on the entire earth. In other words, it's going to have authority over the whole of the earth. But in the end, its aim is to destroy the people of God. And just like we see here as we continue to read the Revelation, this beast is going to have its day. The the church, the people of God, are going to be trampled on and killed. But that's not going to be the end of the story. The beast's days are numbered. This king and his kingdom will be overthrown by God and the Lamb. And at that point, the kingdom of the world will be given over to the the saints of God. That's that's the language that we see. That's what's going to happen. All right. So y'all know the imagery. Now the real question. Well, what nation are we talking about? What king are we talking about? When did this happen? Did this happen in the first century? Or is it happening now? Or is it going to happen in the future? If you studied this, and as you've studied this, I know that you understand that there are, have been many attempts to pinpoint the king and the kingdom that this beast is referring to. And many of your commentators are going to agree that the beast in Revelation 11, 13, and 17 is a reference to the Roman Empire. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I'm sure that many of you have read that at some point in your study. And Rome certainly fit the mold, Right? Rome was the most powerful kingdom on earth during that time. It occupied nearly all of the known and civilized world. It was ravenously opposed to the spread of Christianity. And it promoted worship of its emperor as divine. So it had all of the pieces that you might expect to see. But Rome rose and fell. And other nations took its place. And here we are in the 21st century still trying to figure out which king and which kingdom will be the last. Now, I've been teaching you this for 20-something weeks now. And I don't believe that the best way to understand everything in the Revelation is that it has a literal correlation. It's mostly symbolic. And those symbols are intended to help us understand what life is going to be like for the church throughout the church age. Not just for one period of time, but from the, the, second, I mean, from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ. And I believe that this is best to be understood and read. This vision of the beast is best to be understood and read symbolically. The beast doesn't represent just one nation and one king, but it represents demonic and tyrannical state powers that have persecuted believers throughout the church age. From one nation to the next, the anti-Christian rage has been seen. The leaders of the Soviet Union once predicted that they would stamp out Christianity. Didn't work out so well, but they tried. Mao tried to do the same thing in China. And there have been other times in history when the church has been left for dead in the streets of the world. Over 200 years ago, the French deist Voltaire scoffed at the Bible and hoped that he was living in the twilight of Christianity. But a century later, the very house where he lived had become the home of the Evangelical Society in Geneva. And God has a sense of humor. And it was a a site being used as a storage place for Bibles. You see, the world may write off the church, but God is constantly turning the tables upon this world. But that doesn't mean that there's not persecution happening today. That doesn't mean that there aren't nations and kings and leaders trying to stamp out the gospel everywhere. 
In the world today, the persecution of Christians is one of the biggest human rights issues, and it is the, it's largely being ignored. And it will continue to be ignored if I, have, if I have any insight into how our culture and world thinks. The top five most dangerous countries for Christians are Afghanistan, North Korea, Somalia, Libya, and Yemen. And in just the last year, just the last 12 months, there have been over 360 million Christians living in places where they experience high levels of persecution and discrimination. 360 million more than the entire population of our nation. 5,898 Christians were killed for their faith, specifically for their faith. 5,110 churches and other Christian buildings were attacked, looted, destroyed, and burnt. 4,765 believers were detained without trial, arrest, arrested, and then sentenced and imprisoned. And all of this is happening in our own day. The book of Revelation teaches us that the persecution we face as Christians is the result of the clash between two irreconcilable kingdoms. And the king over our kingdom is our lamb who suffered and died and who sits at the right hand of the father and is waiting on the appointed time for him to return. And the kingdom of this world, according to the revelation in all of scripture, has this demonic influence of the beast fueling it. You see, we see the world with our flesh and blood eyes, and when we open the scriptures, it helps us to see the world through the spiritual lens that God gives us. This is what we're living in. These two irreconcilable kingdoms are, on one hand, you have the kingdom filled with men and women who love Jesus. We love something that is pure and true and eternal, and our love stands in contrast to every other kingdom of this world. Very different. And on the other hand, you have those kingdoms of this world filled with men and women who love something that is evil and untrue and unworthy. And they want their love to be justified. Sound familiar to our culture today? They want their love to be justified and accepted and celebrated by all. And in order to justify their love, they must oppose our kingdom. And so they mock Jesus and all who follow him. And they seek to silence Jesus and all who speak for him. And they seek to destroy Jesus and all those who call him Lord. This is not new. This has been going on for 2,000 years. And it will continue until the mission is complete. Behind this worldly kingdom we read here is a demonic power. The beast, or like John said in 1 John, the spirit of Antichrist. Terrifying, dreadful, exceedingly strong. And this beast is radically narcissistic and self-obsessed and bent on reviling Christ and his people. And his rage is directed completely at the church. And while every age can point to nations and leaders who embody this focused persecution, I believe that the language of Daniel 7 and Revelation 11 would have us understand that the time is coming when there will be one final king and one final kingdom who will rise and attempt to exterminate the people of God. There's a reason I started this sermon by reminding you that the call to discipleship is a hard calling. Because this is true. The secular world, 
will not see what happens to the church as something to mourn, but if you look at the text, they will celebrate the silencing of our witness. The church will finish the mission. The beast will rise, and the world will rejoice. Look at verse 9. For three and a half days, some of the, from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in the tomb. And those who dwell on the earth... Now, I know I've pointed this out a couple of times, but that phrase, those who dwell on the earth, occurs over and over and over and over again in the Revelation. And whenever you see that phrase, those who dwell on the earth, it's, it's language that's specific to those who are unbelievers who are opposed to the kingdom of God. And so when John points that out, he's saying, those who have opposed you, those who dwell on the earth are going to rejoice over the death of the two witnesses and make merry and exchange presents. It's like a birthday party to them. Because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. All right. So the beast will not kill the nation, the king, empowered by the spirit of Antichrist, will not destroy every Christian. And we know that because when we look at the scriptures, we're told by Christ that some will remain to see him actually return. But the church as a body of influence in the world will be greatly diminished and appear to be defeated. The death of the church here means the diminishing of its influence. And the point of the imagery is to show that the kingdom of this world thinks nothing of defiling the church. Like Sodom and Egypt and Babylon from the past, this worldly kingdom mocks the message of Christ, rejects the people of God, and rejoices in our apparent defeat. And you'll notice in the text, or maybe you you saw it when I read through it earlier, you'll notice in the text that this great city is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt, which, which means that this city is to be understood as a representation of those cities, not the actual city itself. This worldly city is even compared to Jerusalem now, you might think, well, wait a minute, what, why, why would they compare this worldly city in opposition to Christianity and the spread of the gospel? Why would, why would it be compared to Jerusalem? Well, don't forget, it was Jerusalem and the people of Jerusalem who killed our Lord. And that's the language that he uses here. And I think that, that word symbolically refers to all of that, not just Sodom and Egypt. The point that John wants us to grasp and, and take away from this particular vision is that the persecution of Christians is a main characteristic of this final earthly kingdom in this final earthly city. And the fact that the world celebrates what they see as the end of their torment just shows how twisted the thinking of the world will become, even more so than today. The message that we proclaim to our neighbors, it's a message of God's love, right? It's a message of God's grace. It's a message of Christ willingly laying down his life to save undeserving sinners from the eternal torment that they deserve. It's a message of true liberation, of true fulfillment, of true sacrificial love. It's a message that sets us free from the tyranny of our hearts and the surety of judgment. And yet the world sees it as torment. Why? 
Why does the world see a message of love and forgiveness and grace and freedom? Why do they see it as torment? Because they love their sin. And they love the freedom that they have to indulge in every sinful impulse they feel. And our witness, which doesn't just preach forgiveness, but but preaches repentance, our message is a torment to the worldly mind. And you're probably not that far removed from your own conversion to remember that time. This picture is deeply disturbing, is it not? It's not a comforting message, it's a disturbing message. And many of you are wondering if we're not already on the cusp of this today. Living in the last days. Some of you are convinced that we're living in the last days. And some of you, maybe you're not so sure. It seems as though our world has launched an all-out assault on the nature of reality. Calling evil good and good evil. An all-out assault on the things and the truths and the realities and the nature of things that we have taken for granted for thousands and thousands of years. And this ideology is spreading through our nation and our world, and and it it is undermining everything that we've held. Well, not necessarily everything, but most of what we've held as settled truth on the nature of things, on the nature of humanity, on the purity of marriage and the home, and so many of the other truths that we take for granted. Look, it is not my job to determine when the end of days will come. It is my job to prepare us for them. Until Christ returns, until that final nation, until that final persecution happens, until Christ returns, you and I, as the church, as those who profess faith in Christ, are to bear witness to God's word and God's gospel, no matter what the world is doing. We are to uphold the gospel of God in our hearts and in our homes and in our churches, and to whatever degree we are able in the world where God has placed us. And as we get ready to close, and we have to close, our time is coming to an end, but as we get ready to close, I want us to go back, and I want us to look at what Jesus said in in his message to the disciples as he told them about these days that were coming. And what did he do to prepare his disciples? What did he tell them? You can read about that in Matthew 24. You can also read about that in Luke 21. And in Luke 21, Jesus sought to prepare the church for the days ahead, especially as we get closer to his return. In Luke 21, starting in verse 29, Jesus says, Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Now, you need to go back and you need to read that. Maybe today as you sit down with your family over a meal, or maybe later this afternoon when things get quiet and you can open your Bible and meditate and pray. I want you to go back to Luke 21, 29, and I'm just going to give you four things 
four practical ways that we can respond to what we've read about regarding the end of days. And the first one is Jesus tells the disciples, tells us, pay attention to the signs. He gave them that illustration of the trees. And he says, when, when you see what's happening, you know summer's coming. You, you get this. You, you've learned to be observant. Well, when it comes to the things of this world and the movements of kingdoms, you need to pay attention to the signs. Jesus wants us to recognize what is coming. Don't put your head in the sand. Don't just lock into your mobile device and act like there's not a world around you. Look up, observe, understand, pay attention to the signs. Jesus wants us to keep one eye on the Word and an eye on the world so that we can be prepared. He wants us to know that the generation that that sees the beginning of these things will see the end of these things. So pay attention to the signs. He also wants us to be comforted that as these things take place, we know that the end is near and that Christ is coming to rescue his people. When the signs occur, don't faint in fear, but renew your hope in the promise of God that for all who trust in Christ, there is no condemnation. For all of those who have trusted in Jesus and turned from our sin and are following him as disciples, there there is no judgment for us. The wrath of God was poured out upon Christ upon the cross. He took upon himself the due penalty for the sins of all those who believe. And by his stripes, we are healed. We, We bear no judgment any longer. And we can be confident that the judgment that is going to be poured out upon this world in that day will not fall upon the church. Praise Christ for that. Pay attention to the signs. Number two, trust his promises. Jesus says, I've told you these things. You are to remember these things and my words will not pass away. Are you fixing your heart not just on the news of the day, but on the word of God every day? And renewing our hope in the word of God. And trusting in the promises as they are revealed to us from the the word of God. As the world turns more and more against us. As the nations continue to rage. And as we are caught up in it. And as our government continues to attack our freedoms and our faith. Will we allow that to, to bring fear into our hearts, or will we, seeing those signs taking place, turn and put our hope in the promises of God? That's what he's calling us to do. And we can trust in his word, right? Well, let me ask you, can we trust in the promises of Christ? Can we trust in his word? Yes, we can. His word is more trustworthy than the ground you're standing on. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. We can trust his promises. Don't let the fear of what's happening turn your heart and affection away from your trust in the promises of God. The third thing he tells us to do here, we're to pay attention to the signs, we're to trust his promises, and then we are to guard our hearts. We're to guard our hearts. As the years pass and tribulations continue, there's a great danger for us to lose heart. The burden of faith is heavy at times, isn't it? And and that only gets more heavy as persecution increases. But Jesus tells us to hold on to him, and he's the one that's going to relieve our burdens. 
How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, but are, are familiar with the book, Pilgrim's Progress, and the journey that Christian was on, and all the difficulty that he faced? Do you remember when he found himself in Doubting Castle? Have you ever been into Doubting Castle? When the cares of the world and the difficulties in your life and the burden of sin became so much that all you could do is sit and weep over the the difficulty you were facing. Do you remember how Christian was released from Doubting Castle? He remembered that he held a key in his bosom. And it was a key that would unlock the door of every heavy-hearted sufferer. And for those who are trusting in Christ, that key is with us all the time. It's the gospel. It's the love of our Lord. And we are to guard our hearts with the truth of that gospel. Which means this, that we belong to Christ not because of how good our lives are. And we belong to Christ not because of how good we are. We belong to Christ because of His promises and His covenant-keeping love. We belong to Christ because He has accomplished our salvation And he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. And we need to guard our hearts with the truth of the gospel. It is the love of God, the rescuing work of Christ, and the promise of redemption that can swallow up all the cares of this world. And we need to allow it to do so. So pay attention to the signs, trust his promises, guard your hearts, and then finally, he tells us that we should stay awake and pray. Stay awake and pray. We're not meant to do this on our own. Do you know that, right? We're not meant to do this on our own. That's why he's called us as a people. He's called us together here to encourage one another, spur one another on, help one another grow, disciple one another, pray for one another. But he's also given us his spirit. We don't do this in our own strength. We must stay awake and pray. I read an illustration recently about prayer, and it's, it's this. When a man is in a boat and he want to, wants to come to land, he guides his boat into the harbor, and then he throws out a line to the shore. And then when the rope is secured on the shore, the man begins to pull on the rope as though he were pulling the shore to him. But in reality, he's pulling himself to shore. That's what prayer is like. When we pray, we may think that we're pulling God to us, but that's not what's happening. We're pulling ourselves closer and closer to Him, being more aligned with His purpose and His will for us. Prayer is us casting our lifeline to God and allowing Him to bring our hearts in alignment with His plans. This is how we need to pray. And as the days get darker and as life gets harder, or even just today, we pray, God, fix our hearts upon you And let your will be done. So can we do that now? Can we cry out to the Lord? Would you pray with me? Father God, as we study your word and as we see the things here in the Revelation, these symbols and these pictures of of the life that we're living in now and what is to come, Father, we need our hearts and our minds and our lives and our churches and our homes and our neighborhoods and our nation. We, We need to be tethered to you. So let it start with us. We cast out that line and we want to pull ourselves back in line with you. We want to remember your promises. We want to be comforted by your love. And so would you do that for us? Would you prepare us for the days ahead? 
Would you prepare us to be salt and light wherever we are? Remind us that you've sent us here, you've called us here, you've left us here because we have a mission to undertake and we need to be faithful in that mission. Let us be bold and faithful witnesses for you. Let us trust in you. And Father, for those who are among us today who who don't have hope in you, whose hearts and minds are still fixed on this world, Lord, I pray that by your grace that you would loosen their hands and their grip on the idols of their hearts and that you would cause them to see that you are a holy creator, that they are a sinner in need, and Christ is the only Savior that can accomplish everything that we need. Father, would you draw their hearts to you and allow them to be born again today? And for all of us, Father, prepare us and use us for your name's sake, I pray. Amen.